strange to me that the movies have not yet caught up with Spencer, although one project which a studio bought for Richard Dreyfuss had at last reports been in the process of being rewritten for 12 years. And, uh, but given the recent massacre of Sarah Paretsky's V.I. Warshawski uh, by Hollywood, uh, maybe Mr. Parker and Spencer are just as well off that they haven't been uh, anointed by the studios. Anyway, Mr. Parker was born in Springfield, Massachusetts, and grew up in New Bedford. In his youth, he read the pulps, as which of us did not, and he became a passionate admirer of Raymond Chandler, most especially. Later, in addition to writing the Spencer novels, he paid homage to Chandler with Poodle Springs, completing the novel that Chandler had left unfinished at his death. And later he wrote Perchance to Dream, which was a sequel, is a sequel to Chandler's The Big Sleep. Parker was 30, married and the father of two sons, working variously as a technical writer and an ad copywriter when his wife, Joan, urged him to go back to college and get a PhD so he could become a teacher. He did, working a dozen jobs or so, he said, so he could stay in school and, and become a teacher. And his doctoral dissertation was called The Violent Hero, Wilderness Heritage and Urban Reality, A Study of the Private Eye, the novels of DeShiel Hammett, Raymond Chandler, and Ross MacDonald. He argued that the private eye is a direct spiritual descendant of J. Fenimore Cooper's Deerslayer. And another writer, David Guerin, commenting on Parker's thesis, said, quote, those virtues once required for survival in the wilderness, strength, courage, steadfastness, resourcefulness, endurance, are now needed by the modern private eye to oppose the evils of civilization. The story of the private eye is a story of conflict between his virtue and the pervasive corruption of society. Spencer's own trademarks, as I'm sure most of you already know, as a private eye are his hulking size, his physical fitness, his notably large but selective appetites for food and drink, his sexy but ever-deepening relationship with Susan, the child psychologist who left him for a while but couldn't stay away, his wisecracking cracking flippancy, especially when meeting new clients, although the wisecracking seems to me to have eased off somewhat in the later books. And finally, his partnership with Hawk, the efficiently lethal black man who, if Spencer works at the edge of the law, often operates well beyond it. With his PhD in hand, Parker did indeed become a teacher at Northeastern University in Boston and had at last become a tenured professor required to teach only one three-hour creative writing course a week. But, as he explained to an interviewer for the Bloomsbury Review in Denver, it was every single Wednesday. You know. <laughs> so he left academia to give full time to his own writing. In addition to the Spencer series, the writing now includes several collaborations with his wife Joan, some episodes of the television show, a stage adaptation of a Stephen King story, and books about the art of writing itself. Spencer, like Parker himself, or maybe I should say Parker, like Spencer himself, is now presumably crowding 60, but he still works out several days a week, as Parker indeed does, and he reads everything. Spencer is the most literate sleuth since some of the gentlemen amateurs out of England who were created by poets, laureate, barristers, and dons. But the appeal of Spencer is the appeal of all private eyes indeed of all the high-born and low-born sluice. They are the men, and increasingly the women, who restore order out of chaos, or at least a little bit of order out of a whole lot of chaos. 
who see wrongs righted and justice done, even if in the process the law often takes a beating and the ends often justify some violent means. But, like Lou Archer in the novels of Ross MacDonald, Spencer has not only has not stayed monolithically the same across his 20 outings, 22 outings. These days, he seems less frequently forced to violence, and he confronts situations which are both subtler and more generic than the slam-bam actioners of the early days. The subtexts carry uncommon weight. In Playmates, he helps a star basketball player who's become involved with the wrong people and whose career would probably have ended but for Spencer's manipulation of events. In Double Deuce, Parker looks at urban gangs and scabrous housing projects with both an accuracy and a compassion that were expressed with what I can only think of as a rare economy of words, which said more than many heftier pronouncements. Robert Parker has honored and extended the legacy of the men he admired so much, Hammett, Chandler, and MacDonald. It's a very considerable pleasure for me, I must say, to welcome him to the Santa Barbara Writers' Conference. And it really is. Well, what uh, Charles Chaplin said goes double for me. Thank you very much. I know I couldn't get away with that. I try it every time I speak. Uh, don't be nervous. I'm not going to give a long speech. I'm going to open with a few flattering remarks about myself. Uh, and then I'm going to throw the floor open to questions. Uh, and if there are no questions, then I will go on making flattering remarks about myself until there are. So be warned. Uh, therefore, you will control the length of the evening within reason. Uh, and you will not. I've never met anyone, in all truth, who ever heard a speech and said to themselves, gee, I wish that were longer. Yeah. I wish that guy talked more. Uh, so I will tell you only that we're involved in a couple of projects. That's the royal we. You know, at some point after that introduction, I'm going to start talking about myself in the third person. This is good for Robert B. Parker to be up here. <laughs> it's the B is important, otherwise they think I'm the wine guy. Yeah. Uh, we, were, we live part of the year in Los Angeles for comic relief. Uh, uh, and to get away from the Boston winters, we, uh, we have a house in Westwood. Uh, oh, we did until my son, the actor, got work in L.A. and is now living there. Uh, and I'm staying in a hotel in L.A., but anyway. Uh, and uh, we are uh, there generally from January to April. And uh, we have friends out, some of whom had never been to Los Angeles. At least one couple who had never been west of Worcester, if you know your Ma Massachusetts geography. That's about 40 miles west of Boston. Uh, so we brought them out uh, with one of their sons and uh, wanted to impress them by taking them to Spago. Uh, when I go to Spago, I'm very happy to be in Siberia because it's quiet. Uh, and I can just eat and be left alone. But uh, Joan insisted that we were going to have them up front where they could see the action. So she called up Spago saying that she was a publicist and says, I've got Robert Parker in town. Needs a table for five by the window. There was a long pause and the, the woman at Spago said, the wine guy? And the added ultimate final pain, my wife immediately said, yes. <laughs> and we sat out front. <sighs> anyway, uh, we, being Joan and I, are involved uh, at the moment uh, in uh, recovering from having participated in the making of two television movies uh, based on Spencer for Hire, starring Robert Urich as Spencer with Avery Brooks as Hawk. 
Yeah, you haven't seen it yet. <laughs> sure, easy for you to clap. Uh, Joan and I wrote the screenplays. Uh, Joan was a coordinating producer, whatever the hell that means. Uh, and uh, all of that means a lot less than it would seem. Uh, the movie will be what it will be, whether we wrote it or didn't write it, and uh, Joan produced or didn't produce. Uh, television is like a great sausage grinder. All sorts of different things go in one end and it comes out sausage. Uh, and uh, these will be sausage, as was the series. Uh, sometimes it's pretty good sausage, uh, and I think probably Spencer for Hire was pretty good television, which is a little like being the tallest building in Keokuk, Iowa. <laughs> I've, I've decided to give up show business, friends. I'm just going to stay home and type. Uh, but anyway, the first uh, movie will be based on ceremony and will be appearing on Lifetime Cable uh, on July 22nd. So you have time to get your friends in, and to, you know, and if you don't have cable, you have time to subscribe uh, and reread Ceremony for the occasion. Don't bother because it will not resemble the book in any particular way, <laughs> except that the characters, some of the characters, have the same name. Uh, there's a new actress playing Susan, uh, an actress named Barbara Williams, uh, whose uh, major accomplishment was to be Canadian. Uh, it's a Canadian. She's Joan Fonda, Jane Fonda's successor. She lives with Tom Hayden. Uh, but anyway, uh, it's a Canadian production. Uh, and the reason is we did a couple of exteriors in Boston and shot everything in Canada uh, and pretended it was Boston. And the reason we did that is the reason everything happens in television. It had to do with money. Uh, it's cheaper in Canada. It's cheaper because of uh, you don't have to deal with the organized labor as much because the Canadian government gives you some uh, tax breaks and because the dollar is favorable. Uh, you know, what would cost a thousand here costs 700 there. All of those were reason enough for the producers to take it right up to Toronto and say, looks just like Boston to me. Yeah. Uh, and uh, if you do shoot in Toronto or any place in Canada and want the breaks, you have to have Canadian people. So it's a Canadian production company and Barbara Williams is Canadian. And the only Americans are uh, Robert Urick and Avery Brooks, and by an odd coincidence, a really quite brilliant young actor uh, named Daniel Parker, uh, who... <laughs> amazing, my kids in my pictures. Just, you look around, there he is. Son of a gun, Dan, what are you doing here? Yeah. Uh, he plays Spike, the waiter from hell, uh, who is the kind of waiter that if you take too long uh, ordering, he comes and sits down with you and you know, goes... Uh, or uh, I believe one line in the uh, in the show, somebody yells at him, "Are you our waiter?" And he says, "Sooner or later." Uh, well, Dan used to wait on table at Benny's Burrito in New York in the Village, uh, and the, the title came because one one customer where it said gratuity wrote, "This is the waiter from hell." Yeah. <laughs> Dan, well, Dan's a better actor than he was a waiter. Anyway, he will be in there playing Spike, uh, and uh, that makes me happy. Uh, and beyond that, uh, you can take a look and see for yourself. I just saw a rough cut of the uh, of ceremony, and I too don't know, except as I say, it'll be a television movie, and that that sort of lays out the broad parameters. Uh, in addition, I am uh, wrestling like a squirrel with a coconut on a 700-page uh, novel about three generations of an Irish family in the Boston police force. Uh, and the family's name is Sheridan, and uh, it starts with the grandfather in Ireland in 1920 during the Troubles, darling. 
uh, and uh, comes down to the present son and then grandson. Uh, all of them are cops in Boston. To talk about an Irish cop in Boston is to commit a tautology of major proportion. Uh, that's, that almost defines policemen in Boston. Uh, I think there is a black guy and uh, one Jewish woman, I think, on the pl and, and 9,000 patties, like me. Uh, as you might be able to tell from this uh, sunny Irish plenum, uh, I myself am of Irish descent. My grandmother came from Cork, and so it's, uh, you know, I'm, it's appropriate novel to write. But it's hard. Uh, the Spencer novels come to me rather easily, and uh, I said to Joan one day, this must be what other novelists go through. This is hard. <laughs> I have to think and everything, you know? And, uh, well, you know, you have some, you have a couple going out in 1920 in Dublin to have dinner. What do they eat? Uh, you know, so forth. So, uh, it's taken me a long time. It's kind of clogging up the pipeline. Usually I'm about two Spencers ahead, and now I have none for next year. I will, I will. I'll get it done. You know, I'll just look at me like my publisher does, you know. <laughs> I'll get you one, I'll get you one. Uh, but the cop novel, which is currently called uh, All Our Yesterdays, will be out uh, sometime in 94, as will another Spencer. And uh, how that will be coordinated, I don't know. Uh, beyond that, I bought a farm in Concord, Massachusetts, and I'm going to restore the house. <laughs> I like to do that. Uh, and that's pretty much my story. I'm in the uh, middle of a book tour. I've been everywhere uh, and barely noticed it. And I will go home on the 2nd of July. So if I look a little fuzzy, it's because uh, I have been doing this a lot uh, of late. And I think you will be here as witnesses to my retirement voyage. I think this is going to be my final book tour. I'm going to have book, you know, jackets made up, 1993 final world tour or something. Uh, I think I'm hanging it up. Uh, as uh, Charles said, uh, unlike Spencer, who is uh, the same age as Little Orphan Annie, uh, I have uh, achieved uh, the magic 6-0, and I'm getting long in the tooth for dashing around the country, I think. So, uh, not that I'm not young, vigorous, and attractive, but Christ, I'm tired. <laughs> a reviewer in New York, I don't know where it was, a reviewer someplace, I don't read reviews. Uh, it doesn't do me any good. Uh, I'm doing the best I can. Uh, and, you know, the good ones make me overconfident, and the bad ones break my heart. So. Uh, I don't read. I don't read about myself. I don't look at tapes of myself, uh, anything. Uh, Joan keeps track of them just to make sure I'm not missing something I should. And usually I'm not. Uh, but uh, a reviewer pointed out, Joan couldn't resist showing me this, uh, that uh, Spencer and Susan were much too old to be that romantic. <laughs> Get a life, I thought, you know. <laughs> oh, this poor devil. Uh, I don't know who it was, but it said a lot more about him than, uh, he must be older than I am, that's all I can say. All right, now I'm going to stop uh, chatting about myself uh, and ask you to ask me some pointed cogent questions, you know, how did I get to weigh this much at only 5'10", things like that. You know? Yeah. Likes his, I don't know. Can everyone hear that? Do I have to repeat the questions? Yes, I have to repeat the questions? Okay. It's a dumb way to put it. You know, each answer, each question re took a, a yes answer. Talk about smart. Uh, 
I just thought I got old. I didn't say I got smart. Anyway, uh, the question was, uh, she's always admired Spencer's sensitivity, as have I, by the way. Uh, and uh, she wondered how I came up with the character and uh, how I decided to give him these things. Uh, the answer is, as you will hear me say many times tonight, I have no idea. Uh, I just sort of go like that, you know, and it happens. Uh, that is, uh, that's not entirely true, but uh, how I do it, I don't quite know. Uh, I started out shamelessly imitating Raymond Chandler. Uh, uh, the in uh, several people have done doctoral dissertations on me. <laughs> would you would you take a degree which would accept a doctoral dissertation on me? You know, <laughs> that's what I said when they gave me tenure. I wouldn't work at a place that would give me tenure. You know, there's endless ramifications that old Groucho Marx line. You know, which was I wouldn't join a club that would have me for a member. Uh, but uh, it has been pointed out uh, that I was influenced by Chandler. Uh, that's a kind way. I, you know, I copied him. It's uh, copying Raymond. That's what I was doing. Uh, and then as I uh, went along, uh, what happens to a writer is, I think, that the first book you're writing away there, you don't know what you're doing. You very well may take a year and a half to write it, and no one will publish it, and you'll throw it away. Uh, and uh, so you struggle with it more than you need to. Uh, after you write it and they publish it and say, can we have an option on your next book? And they publish that and uh, give you 2,000 bucks, you know. I'm making twice that now. I mean, that was, that was way back then. Uh, you begin to get confidence and you stop copying Chandler or thinking about anything except writing the book that you'd like to read. Uh, in terms of the sensitivity, uh, which uh, I think probably has something to do with uh, the relationship with Susan and uh, other things like that, perhaps Paul Jackman. Uh, the, the significant event in my life, the shaping event in my life, uh, was meeting uh, the former Joan Hall of Swanscott uh, at the first night of college in 1950 at the freshman dance uh, when I picked her out of across a crowded room. It was in a some enchanted evening. Uh, and uh, asked her to dance and fell in love with her at once. She thought I was a stiff, actually, at the time. Uh, she described me someplace, uh, and it's accurate. I was wearing a Glen plaid suit with a green shirt and a roll Mr. B collar, for you old enough to remember that, big roll in the collar, a little narrow tie, uh, the kind of shoes that only had one eyelet. Uh, I was chewing gum, and then I had a lit cigarette behind my ear. Uh, Hey, yeah. Hey, you want to dance? Can I give you a little feel? You know, I grew up in New Bedford. You know, not everyone does. Uh, a lot of my friends never made it. Uh, and uh, anyway, but uh, I prevailed eventually. And uh, the relationship with Joan has been uh, by far the most significant thing that ever happened to me. Uh, and uh, by the time I had married Joan and the two boys were born. I had done everything I ever really wanted to do, and the rest of it is kind of uh, gravy. Uh, I don't want to, you know, I, I like the gravy. I don't want to stop doing it. Uh, let no uh, God misunderstand me and snatch me away too soon. But uh, it's, it makes one calm uh, when that's going well. And I think I try to use that feeling, uh, you know, how I feel about my children, how I feel about Joan, in the books, and that may make Spencer 
Marlow was alone, you know, and uh, isolated. And uh, Spencer is not. He has uh, Susan, he has Paul Jackman, and of course, like myself, he has Pearl the Wonder Dog, uh, which, talk about sensitive. Uh, some of this stuff I make up, but Pearl is from life, uh, a canine American princess. So whether I answered the, I either answered it or avoided it so cleverly that you wouldn't even notice. Somebody else asked me something, yes. Why did I make him so literary? Well, I had a PhD in English. I had to do something with it. <laughs> I mean, I'm grossly overeducated. Uh, although, as Joan has often pointed out, I can seal it magnificently. <laughs> uh, and uh, it comes. That's not contrived. Uh, one of the things I did when they did the television series uh, was to talk them out of using the literary illusions because the network insisted not only that we use a literary illusion, but we also identify it. So, so Spencer is musing along, thinking tomorrow and tomorrow, as was said in Macbeth by William Shakespeare. <laughs> the, the quotations in the television series reeked of Bartlett's familiar quotations uh, because uh, with the exception uh, of one uh, intelligent fellow who wrote at least six of them. Uh, most of the uh, writers of the television series uh, were not familiar with very many literary quotations other than, say, freeze dirt bag, you know. <laughs> so I tried to talk them out of that, but in the books they just come. And sometimes they're wrong because neither Spencer nor I look them up as they, you know, as we go about. Uh, and they just come along, you know, and uh, they come. I just did one earlier. I made some allusion to Frost when I talked about having everything I ever wanted to do, but let no God misunderstand me and snatch you away too soon. Uh, that just came into my head. That's not part of their shtick, and that, that's the way I am. I think of uh, scraps of popular music and uh, literary allusions. That's the kind of head I've got. And so it just comes in as I write. Uh, and uh, it works, I think, to soften some of the redneck qualities of Spencer because he is an odd combination uh, of, uh, you know, I mean, he's violence. Uh, I mean, he likes to hit. You don't do what he does if you don't like to hit, as we used to say in the corner. Uh, and uh, yet he is also uh, knows about poetry and uh, likes dogs and children and, you know, loves Susan and stuff like that. Uh, so... It, you know, John Kenneth Gilbreth once was quoted uh, as saying that economists make predictions not because they know, but because they're asked. Uh, well, writers say a great many things about the process of writing, not because they really know what they're doing, but because someone asks them. Uh, and uh, it is all a somewhat more semi-conscious business uh, than, than the average writer talking to a group at a writer's conference would lead you to believe, or at least in my experience it is. Uh, and we tend to say these things not because we know, but because we're asked. Uh, there is very little master plan in my case. Yes, way back there. The, 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 the gators. <laughs> the gators. 
fine. Thank you very much. Uh, you want to say uh, something Bostonian like, uh, like uh, let's go out and have a pizza and a beer? <laughs> so I'll know it's really authentic. Uh, the Gators was a softball team for which I was uh, a star. For which I was a star uh, for many years in the Linfield Twy League. Uh, I was a first base person, uh, and uh, I try to be correct. I used to say I was a first base thing, but people felt that that was a little... I didn't have to go that far. So, uh, And uh, since I retired eight years ago, uh, they haven't done very well. Anybody else? Yeah. Outlines. Uh, I say the books uh, just happened, do I outline? Well, I did say the books just happened, and it's, that's misleading as well. Unfortunately, every, everything I say about the process of writing is sort of misleading because it's not fully articulatable. It's rather like, uh, I, I think it's more akin to music than anything else, to, uh, to somebody improvising on a theme. Uh, and if you ask Dave McKenna why he did that riff sometime, he will say, I don't know, you know felt right, sounded right, it imagined right. Uh, that said, uh, when I began, I outlined uh, religiously. Uh, I, I did a chapter outline. That is, you know, it would only take a whole book, would only have four or five pages of outline, and the chapter might be one sentence, you know, Spencer drives to Smithfield uh, to watch Ace Parker play for the Gators. Uh, but at least I knew what was going to happen. And that uh, outline was quite similar to the final product. You'd see the outline, and you'd know perfectly well uh, where it was with the book. Uh, I did that uh, more for the psychological support of it than for the what, literary merit of the result, uh, so that I never had to sit down at front of, at that time, the typewriter and say to myself, oh my god, I don't know what I'm going to write. Yeah. Uh, so I outlined. Then when it came time to do Poodle Springs, which I inherited from Raymond Chandler, uh, and which was mostly me, uh, there were 13 pages of Chandler's novel, uh, and uh, the rest was me. Uh, but in those 13 pages, he set the novel. You know, Linda Loring was married, etc. So, uh, thanks a lot, Ray. But uh, I didn't outline that because my goal was to write the novel that Chandler would have written, uh, not to make a Parker uh, spin on Raymond Chandler, uh, and I was trying to emulate him as perfectly as I could, uh, and he didn't outline. He just went in a room and sat until something happened, uh, and so I did that, and I found it probably a good idea. It seemed to me then that the outline had become less a support than it had become a limitation, uh, and instead of uh, the serendipity of uh, associative discovery, uh, I was sticking to the outline. Uh, and since Poodle Springs, which would have been somewhere, I don't know, what, 1988 or so, uh, I have not outlined. Uh, I do not recommend not outlining until you know that you can. Uh, and I've written 20-something books. I know I can. You know, I know it'll come. Uh, and I know if I sit down every day, I'll get my five pages, which is what I do, five pages a day. Uh, and I know I'll get them done. But first or second novel when I didn't know that, uh, I think the outline was invaluable. So, uh, no, I don't outline anymore. Uh, and I think it makes for uh, 
a larger, richer, uh, slightly more uh, exotic tapestry, I hope. Yes, ma'am. Uh, editing. Do I do my own? Who does it and how much? Uh, I don't do my own, thank God. Uh, for everybody concerned, I'm a terrible editor. Uh, and uh, I send it in and they edit. Uh, the, there is, of course, copy editing, which uh, serves two useful functions. It cleans up my mistakes and it gives me someone to blame when they miss one. <coughs> like Javinci uh, instead of Giverny. Uh, and, uh, like, uh, Spencer's mother was alive in one book and dead before he was born in another. And, you know, <laughs> goddamn copy editors, you know, wow. Uh, but, uh, they clean up, uh, my, uh, you know, I don't spell terribly well and, uh, all of that. Uh, and they do all of that fine. Uh, so they copy edit me. As far as substantive editing goes, not very much. Uh, of the 20-something books, probably 15, 16, 18 of them are my first draft as, as I send it in. Uh, I don't do more than one draft normally. Uh, I have taken to writing on a word processor, uh, and uh, that makes drafts sort of irrelevant. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I think that it's improved my writing because it's so easy to revise, I probably revise more. Uh, someone could do a wonderful literary study on the effect of the word processor on a writer, uh, on a writer's style and what happens. Uh, you may recall that Henry James's so-called famous later manner, uh, Wings of the Dove, uh, The Ambassadors, what Maisie knew, uh, those kinds of books, uh, have sometime been ascribed to the fact that he uh, lost his eyesight in his later years and dictated those books uh, to a stenographer. Uh, and the famous later manner may simply be an oral style. Uh, well, I think something like that may happen with uh, people who move from uh, typewriter to computer. Uh, there's probably a difference in the style, but I, uh, I'm only guessing, and I don't think I'll do a study on that for the Bloomsbury Review. Uh, way in the back. No, I just start on page one, and particularly when I'm not outlining, I. Uh, follow where it where it goes now that again is a is a metaphoric statement it's not true uh you know you hear right as i was talking to barnaby before we came on about being on oprah last year with judith krantz I... uh there were about five of us it must have been a really slow day for uh, oprah i figure somebody canceled and they dashed around called up a bunch of publishers you know said send us somebody Anyway, uh, Dutch Leonard and I were down at one corner, and uh, there were others there who will go unnamed, but one of them was Ms. Krantz. Uh, and uh, Oprah was pitching us tough questions like, what have you learned from your characters? You know, Do your characters ever talk to you? And Leonard and I were going, ooh. <laughs> what do I have to do to get off the show? Uh, but uh, <coughs> Ms. Krantz said that her characters all talked to her, and they said, uh, write us again. Your fans want to read more about us. Write all about us. And I did, and scruples too. And Len Leonard looked at me and crossed his eyes, you know. And, uh, and uh, 
We left the stage. Uh, there's a lot of uh, security at Oprah. It's uh, very, everyone is searched. I mean, everybody, me, everybody, uh, when, they, when you go in there. And then you sort of file off single file with security people around you when you're through. And we were going, and Dutch and I were the last two in line, and he was behind me. And I said, in 60 years, Dutch, this may be the highest level of horseshit I have ever heard. And Dutch said, uh-huh. I love him. <laughs> but anyway, uh, they don't talk to me. And if, if one of my characters starts talking to me, get me directly to the doctor. Uh, but uh, what I do is uh, I begin with, uh, with a premise. Uh, in uh, Paper Doll, I began with this thought that a upper-class and aristocratic woman with no enemies is murdered, and she turns out not to be what she appeared to be. Uh, it's not the most original idea in the world, but... I don't have very original ideas. Uh, execution is all. Anyway, uh, and then I see where it goes. Uh, and I've written about many of these characters uh, for a long time, and their characters therefore determine to some extent what they will do. What is plot but the illustration of character? What is character but the determinant of plot? Henry James. Uh, and so uh, I start in the beginning, and I roll on through. Uh, and. Uh, I didn't know in Paper Doll who had done it until somewhere around page 200. Uh, but uh, usually, well, usually, of course, in my books, the issue of who done it doesn't make much difference. Uh, it's frequently known at the first chapter. You know, I don't write generally the classic who done it, so Paper Doll is closer to that than anything I've done. Somebody else? Yeah. Uh, Yes, I, I cook to eat. Uh, yes, I will talk about some of the frustrations I had when I was an aspiring writer. None. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, the Godwolf Manuscript was the first piece of fiction I ever attempted. Uh, I sent it to Houghton Mifflin because they were close by, uh, and they called me up in three weeks and said they'd publish it. Uh, someone in the back is starting to braid a rope. Wait a minute. <laughs> uh, and I have, uh, I have had one rejection in my writing career. Uh, Alice Turner from Playboy called me up maybe 10 years ago, and she said, we want a short story for you for our blah, blah issue. And I said, uh, I don't do short stories. I have no skill at it. Uh, and uh, I've never written one. I'd have no desire to. And they said, you know, oh, well, we'll give you more money than you're worth, and we'll let you dance with a bunny. And, uh, <laughs> and so finally, upon the promise that I didn't have to talk to Hef, uh, I... Second prize is two talks with Hef. Uh, nice pajamas, Hef, you know. Uh, anyway, I, I, I finally wrote this thing called Surrogate, and I sent it in, uh, and they rejected it, <laughs> which I, <laughs> I kind of liked. Uh, so it was finally published in a magazine, pardon me, called The Club. Uh, and it was, uh, well, let me say that I never showed that to my mother. Uh, and uh, you know how the short story starts and it has a jump. The jump took me to the back of Club Magazine where alongside of my story with a little picture of me at the head was a big ad for a crotchless mouse suit. <laughs> they didn't have one in extra large so the hell in. <laughs> Uh, 
Yeah, that's the problem, the question of Spencer's age. Uh, real time passes. Paul Jackman is a little kid, and then he's a grown man. Uh, Spencer remembers being in Korea uh, and uh, fighting Joe Walcott. Uh, I was in Korea. I didn't fight Joe Walcott. Rather fought the Koreans, all things being equal, I think. Uh, and uh, I don't know what to do about that, not all truth. Uh, I guess I'll just ignore it, which is what I usually do with something I don't know what to do about. Uh, I don't want to have him, you know, I'm 60 now, and I gave him my memories filtered through my imagination. Uh, but, you know, he likes the things I like. He remembers seeing Pee Wee Reese and Stan Musial and all of that sort of thing. Uh, in the series, in the television series, they moved him up to a Vietnamese war veteran. And uh, I suppose I could just suddenly have say, you know, how was it in Desert Storm, Spencer, you know? <laughs> And he could be playing his Elton John records. and uh, uh, But uh, I don't know what to do about that. And what I've done is I simply don't mention his age. But I, you know, I stick with the real time. Uh, and I give him the real memories. And I simply don't say how old. Uh, and uh, I gear it a little bit to myself. Uh, I try not to make it ridiculous. Uh, I can still, uh, you know, I still work out with weights and things. Uh, I don't do what I used to do, because my both both shoulders are sort of arthritic. That's one of the charms of having done a lot of heavy bench presses in your life. You know, you can, when you get to be 60, your shoulders hurt. Uh, and uh, I can still run a few miles, albeit slowly, if the knees are in, not bothering me. Uh, so I take what I could do, uh, and then I elevate it a little if I were larger-than-life hero figure, uh, and I let him do that. Uh, and I'll just sort of gauge it by that. You know, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do about that. But never mention it again. Yeah. You talked about this 700-page novel that you're working on. How is that process different from the Spencer uh, series? Are you experiencing any major differences? What's the difference between working on a 700-page novel and the Spencer books? Uh, yeah, they are different. Uh, the biggest difference is that I am uh, required to write about things uh, that I can't make up uh, times that I didn't live in, uh, places that I've only visited. Uh, I've had to read books, uh, several books. My lips got really tired. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Joan, and I went, Joan and I went to Dublin last uh, fall to walk around and get a feel for the city. Uh, and uh, just at the most elementary level, as I say, you... Uh, it's okay. I c you can do, if you want to write a love scene and you want to do so fairly graphically uh, and you want to mention underclothing, what kind of underclothing did they wear in Dublin in 1920? And how do you find out? Uh, when they, if you have somebody go out to dinner, uh, what do they eat? Uh, I mean, part of the, you know, I have always done a lot of concrete detail. And uh, concrete detail in a book that spans 70 years uh, and takes place at least partially in places you don't live in uh, requires me to think more, really, to take more time at it, to either look it up in a book or work around the problem that I don't know. Uh, either is effective. I mean, there's no reason, there's no reason not to fake it. I mean, part of fiction is faking it. Uh, this stuff doesn't really happen, friends. You know, I make this up. Uh, it, I mean, it's uh, you know, I'm a grown man telling lies to other people, uh, but. Uh, you can work around it, uh, and a little information in good hands can go quite a long way. But uh, it all takes a great deal more time. 
Plus, I'm used to the sort of relatively quick gratification of writing a novel in four months and sending it in. Uh, this has been almost two years, and I'm heartily sick of it. <laughs> Structure, uh, that's not... Uh, no, not really. Uh, there's no outline. Uh, I have it in, uh, I have changed the structure a few times, but the biggest single problem is the, uh, the lack of accessible information uh, that I can do easily and make up. Uh, the problem, uh, I'm also playing around with a narrative point of view, which is going to be kind of complicated. I want to sort of frame the story in the contemporary first-person narration and then go back and have the, the historical parts integrated with the first-person narration in a way that is hard to describe, but will be brilliant when you see it. Maybe. Uh, yes, ma'am. In looking for Rachel Wallace and other places, Spencer has dealt with a number of feminist issues, and where does that come from? Uh, Joan made me do it. <laughs> Uh, well, you know, it, those are issues that uh, they come from my head. They all come from my head. I mean, I am, uh, you know, the standard interview question is how much of you is Spencer? And uh, the standard answer is I don't know. Uh, but it's also how much of me is the serial killer in Crimson Joy? How much of me is uh, uh, Rachel Wallace, who was a lesbian feminist? Uh, how much of me is Hawk? How much of me is anybody? You know, they all... They're all, I make them all up, you know, and one forgets that I make up the women and the men and the blacks and the whites and the gays and the straights and everybody else. And it all comes out of my imagination, uh, which is in turn informed by the life that I live, which includes issues of uh, feminism and equality and uh, the rights of man and woman. Uh, I, was, I was a first-base person. Uh, but... Uh, it seemed something, uh, I, I liked the idea in Rachel Wallace, it, it often starts with something like this, I liked the idea of this, uh, this tough macho guy and this tough feminist woman, uh, and wouldn't that be interesting? Uh, Playmates started with the, sort of the idea of uh, what if Spencer made Bobby, met Bobby Knight? Uh, wouldn't that be interesting? Uh, which is not to say that uh, the coach and Playmates is Bobby Knight, he isn't, I've never met Bobby Knight, I don't think about Bobby Knight. Uh, uh, but uh, it was an interesting thought. And uh, some little thing like that pops in your head and you think, wouldn't that be interesting? And then you see what you do with it. Uh, I'm in favor of uh, everybody getting treated well and nobody getting treated bad. How's that for firm position, friends? Right here, you heard it here. Uh, am I a feminist? No, I'm not a feminist or an integrationist or a segregationist or a racist or a anything. I'm not an ist, but, uh, you know, I think... Uh, I think you all come, and uh, uh, everybody welcome under the tent, and I do try to make the books sort of look like America. Uh, and uh, I guess they'll probably be, you know, I mean, one of the charms of having Susan recur, and not, a, and not everyone finds those charming. There are, there's always the small, ugly contingent who says, when are you going to kill that bitch off? Uh, <laughs> Joan is particularly pleased with them. Uh, and there's the intellectual contingent which says, well, what should be a subplot too frequently becomes the dominant plot. Uh, and they s both have the right to their opinion, and to each of them I say, you know. <laughs> it's my book, I'm going to write it like I want to. Uh, 
But uh, the, the, the pleasures of Susan involve, she gives you a lot of things to do, you know, including feminist issues uh, and uh, love issues and uh, independence issues and so forth. Uh, so I guess we'll do some more of that someplace. Yeah. Would I ever kill off Spencer? No. No, I have no desire to. I don't see why I would. Uh, a lot of people did that. Uh, Fenimore Cooper killed off Leatherstocking and then had to write some prequels, you know. Uh, <coughs> killed him off in a third book. Uh, Holmes, of course, went over the falls there. Uh, I've never understood why anyone wants to do that. I like doing Spencer. Uh, if anyone has ever heard from me in 100 years, they'll know it. me as the guy who wrote about Spencer. I won't much care whether they've heard of me in 100 years or not, it won't do me much good. But uh, I, it's what I do, I'm proud of it. I'm, uh, I'm the best there is at what I do, sweetheart. And uh, I'm happy to keep doing it. Now and then I'll do something else because sometimes I feel like it, but I'll always be writing Spencer. And uh, if I die before he's finished, uh, maybe someone will pick it up and do it to the benefit of my ears. I would have no objection to that. I would hate it if they did it better, but uh, thanks me for the hours of wit and uh, intelligence. <laughs> he also wants to know Spencer's full Christian name. I don't know. Uh, I don't know what it is either. That wasn't supposed to be a big deal. I just sort of uh, went along. It looked pretty good to me. And then the more people ask, the more obviously I'm not going to say. But it's not like I have a name and I'm not telling. I don't know what it is either. Uh, Spencer is his last name. I think in one book I even had him spell it to somebody with off-camera, you know. Uh, she asked me my first name, I spelled it for her, just to let you know we had my jacket covers and on the pictures. But in point of fact, uh, those are all marketing tools. And I perhaps naively insist on believing that the people in the publishing house know more about marketing these books than I do. Uh, often I am proven wrong in that, uh, but I keep insisting on it. Uh, and so I... I that picture and the one in the preceding ones, the one with Pearl, uh, those pictures are the result of uh, about nine hours of photography on a hot August day wearing my leather jacket and my hat, which is what they wanted me to wear, uh, and keeping Pearl from biting the photographer, which probably I shouldn't have done. You know? <laughs> Joan hates that thuggish picture of me in the current uh, issue and uh, told everybody who would listen causing a minor disruption in the publishing house. Joan can, yeah, among us, if you were going to have one of us mad at you, you'd want me. Uh, uh, so I think that thuggish picture may go. Uh, I got at least one f letter from an irate woman who said that uh, if, if the publisher insisted on putting this stupid picture that they thought looked like Spencer on the book, she wasn't going to buy any more. Uh. <laughs> I had to write say no, and it's, it's me. <laughs> it's not Spencer. He's it's me. Uh, but 
It's, uh, I like the one with the dog. The thought that either Pearl or I is dangerous is hilarious. Uh, and, uh, I, but I, I may pay more attention in the future, but I had nothing to do with that. Yeah. Do I read other detective and mystery fiction? Not very much. I don't read very much at all. I have a PhD. I don't need to. Uh, Uh, I couldn't spell PhD and now I are one, you know. But anyway, uh, much of my uh, imaginative energy is consumed in writing every day in such a way that I have a, find it hard to read fiction. I do read and admire and enjoy and am able to woefully suspend my disbelief uh, for the works of Elmore Leonard. Uh, I just read Run Punch on the flight from Kansas City to Los Angeles uh, several days ago and liked it a lot. Uh, yeah, I think he's a wonderful writer, uh, and partly for the same reason. Well, on, on Oprah, somebody uh, he, Oprah asked uh, Dutch uh, to name some of his favorite writers and why he liked them, and he said, "I like Bobby Ann Mason. I like the way she sounds, uh, and uh, I like Dutch because of the way he sounds. He sounds great." Uh, beyond that, I can admire and have read, though I don't regularly read very much fiction, uh, Tony Hillerman and George Higgins, uh, but uh, Dutch is the best and uh, present company, of course, excluded. Uh, and uh, I read some nonfiction. I'm reading Simon Sharma's book on the rise of the Dutch Republic, uh, An Embarrassment of Riches, at the moment. Uh, he's at Harvard, just across the street. It's a college in Boston. Yeah. What's my daily routine like when I'm writing? Well, I get up in the morning, have a couple of martinis to get my heart started. <laughs> Uh, have break I, I'm joking about the martinis, the kind of thing that ends up in, in People magazine, you know. Uh, uh, I get up uh, early because Pearl, the wonder dog, uh, arises at daybreak regardless. And uh, since she sleeps in the bed under the covers when she gets up, I get up. Because uh, when she gets up, the covers are gone. Anyway, so we're usually up at 6.30 or 7, uh, Pearl and I, and uh, I feed her and have breakfast and read the Globe and, uh, you know, clean up the dishes. That's right, ladies, I clean up. Uh, and uh, talk about feminist, huh? When I used to cook, yes, I cleaned up. Uh, and uh, oh, somewhere around 9.30, uh, I get to my, I have an office in my house, and I sit down and I write my five pages. Uh, with many interruptions to check and see if the mail is there and uh, you know, to look out the window at uh, particularly when school's in session and the Radcliffe students are zipping by. Uh, I'm not entirely liberated. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I forget who it was, but somebody else, not me, said writers love distraction. All that stuff about going up to Breadloaf and being isolated, for yeah, I'd go crazy, you know. Uh, I love it. I can't wait for someone to call me up and interrupt me. Uh, oh, there goes an airplane. Uh, but, uh, and I write my five pages, and that uh, will take me sometimes an hour, and sometimes seven, uh, depending on how it's going, but I always write my five. Uh, and then I uh, go to the gym, and I lift some weights, uh, and uh, until people complain about the noise my shoulder is making, uh, ask me to oil it or something. But, Anyway, I lift some weights and uh, 
do some aerobic exercise, which I, we used to call jogging, but uh, now that we're a much high, higher tech, we do some aerobic exercise, some cardiovascular exercise. Uh, and then I come home, and uh, then I get the martini, uh, and have supper and watch whatever is going on on television involving a round ball, uh, basketball, football, baseball. Uh, or if desperation sets in and there's no ball game, anything involving a horsey, you know, uh, and any Western. Uh, and uh, go to sleep, and that's the day. And I could do that every day forever. Hear that? Forever. Uh, and uh, that's my day. Is Spencer kind of losing his sense of humor now that he's getting older? Yeah. <laughs> Me too. I don't know. I'll leave that to you. Uh, there's one, of, one of the the least seemly things writers can do is to make judgments about their own work. Uh, I think he's hilarious, but I'll, I'll leave it to you. Uh, certainly if he is, it's only because I can't do better, not because of any intentions. Old people are funny. Yes. Yes. You do too. Yes. Hey, uh, just a comment that I write about Paul Pearl beautifully and uh, that any sensible person would like it very much. Uh, she and I do. Uh, Pearl is from life. As I say, a lot of this is imaginary, but I just take that word for word. She's just like that. Uh, and I have fun with her. She's very nice. Way in the back, yeah. Robert Yurick. Did the image of Spencer look anything like Robert Yurick? No. Uh, still doesn't. Uh, that is, you know, nothing happened uh, to change it. Uh, in a real sense, I'm not sure I have as clear an image in my mind of him, perhaps, as you do. If pressed, I say that the actor who most resembles him is probably a young Robert Mitchum, uh, or a not-so-young Robert Mitchum now, but younger than Mitchum. Uh, but, you know, the Mitchum of uh, 45 years old or so and, uh, and all of those uh, things, that was... Uh, he was something then, and uh, he would be fine. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, Bob is a big athletic guy, played football at Florida State, uh, and uh, if you don't want Robert Urich and you do want a big athletic guy to play in a series of television shows, who are you going to get, you know? When I met him uh, and talked to him, I, I had approval, and I approved him. I went, uh, he met us in New York, and we talked, and then my two agents and I went to the Four Seasons for a drink afterwards, and uh, both my agents are women, uh, Flora Roberts and Helen Brand. And I said to them, well, if I, what happens if I say no? And they said, well, it's no. And I said, and then who do I get, Eric Estrada? <laughs> and they both said, maybe, you know. And I said, let's go with Bob. Uh, and uh, he's a pretty good guy. Uh, and, uh, you know, if I had to do over again, probably I would, because I still don't know. Uh, big actors are hard to find. Uh, particularly big actors who play television shows. Uh, so he'll be in these movies as well. And, uh, but no, he's not. He's not Spencer. Yeah. Where did Hawk come from? Well, 
I made him up, of course. Uh, came from there. I was with Steve King once, and someone said, where do you get your ideas, Mr. King? He said, Utica. <laughs> and I was a television interviewer, and she went right on. Thank you very much. And now, Mr. Parker, what are you... So I said, same place. Uh, well, there's two answers to that. Uh, and the, the easy one makes it seem, sounds more important than it is. Uh, I, part of my doctoral dissertation has to do with uh, a theme, a way of thinking about American literature that probably first surfaced in D.H. Lawrence's studies in classic American writers. Uh, when he said of Leatherstocking, uh, the uh, essential American soul is hard, isolate, stoic, and a killer. Uh, and he pointed out that most of the major heroes of American fiction had a very close relationship with a non-white male companion. Uh, Leslie A. Fiedler developed this into more of a thesis than anyone could have imagined uh, in Love and Death in the American Novel, in which he said the essential love story in American literature is homoerotic between a white man and a non-white male companion. Uh, and the companion is non-white because American writers repress the homoerotic impulse. Uh, you know, uh, way to go, Leslie. Uh, but it's a, it's a very fine book on the American novel. I, I don't necessarily buy his conclusions. And uh, some of his, uh, you, if you pay attention, you discover why he didn't substantiate some of his hypotheses, because <laughs> you can't. Uh, but it's nonetheless a very valuable book, and I don't mean to imply that it isn't. Uh, if anyone wants to know something about the American novel, it's still a valuable book to read, one of the best I know. Uh, and uh, a, a host of other writers have done it. Uh, R.W.B. Lewis and the American Adam and uh, Richard Chase uh, in, uh, and Leo Marx and uh, others. Uh, playing around with this theme of a black man or, or a white man with a non-white companion, Indian African, uh, Asian, whatever. And I had some thought of that uh, when I uh, put Spencer and Hawk together. But Hawk first appeared in Promised Land merely as a worthy adversary. Uh, and then when I wrote The Judas Goat, it seemed a good idea to have him re reappear because he would be appropriate to the need. That's what I do with a lot of characters. I never put a character in in order to use them later. Uh, I always just put them in because they work there, and then when I'm going down the line, sort of like life, you think, oh, well, I remember this guy. I could use him. You know? uh, the, the rest of it is just that Hawk is uh, sort of my imagination of how Spencer might have been had he grown up a minority figure in a majority culture. Uh, he knows uh, the practical necessities of life in a way that Spencer uh, has not quite had to learn, even though they are both very uh, tough people. Uh, and... Then there's the other part, which is, I don't know, you know. I mean, there's that whole, you know, beyond here there be monsters, you know, that part. I don't know where that, where it all comes from. Yeah. Do I keep a card file? It's all up here. I don't have any, I'm a terrible filist. Uh, I mean, I don't say that to suggest that you should not, merely that I don't. Uh, it's all there. Uh, I think it was... Uh, Woody Allen, who, when he said it, was more reputable than he's become, uh, who said something to the effect that you never forget the good stuff. Uh, and uh, I, I fear that he may have to. Uh, <laughs> but you don't, uh, or at least I don't. Uh, it's in there, and uh, the... Uh, I mean, I always have the books to go back and find out how tall Martin Quirk was, or, you know... Uh, 
whether Susan ever wore a dress like this before, if I want to look it up. Uh, but no, I don't keep any uh, any card files or anything like that. I don't do much of anything except type five pages a day. I don't have much in the way of technique here. Anybody else? Yeah. Uh, if I write five pages today, do I read them tomorrow and rewrite them? No. Uh, they're done. Uh, I may read them in order to get rolling on the next five, uh, so they get a running start. Uh, but I almost never revise uh, beyond the day that I've written. Uh, so what you see is essentially my first draft. Uh, you know, when I write in a computer, so it's, there's a kind of endless revision process that goes on. I start, no, I delete, I do this. Uh, but uh, no, I don't. I don't go through it again. Joan reads them uh, just to make sure I'm not committing a public disgrace. Uh, and uh, I, don't, I don't mean she reads them and says, "Do this, do that." She just sort of reads them to make sure. Because you get too close, or at least I do. I don't know if it's any good or not. Uh, I've come to trust myself, but when I'm this close to it, when I finish a book, I don't know if it's any good or not. I've been at it too long, and uh, I'm too close to it. Uh, yeah. How did I? How did I go about finding my agents and why too? Uh, the uh, the first part. I'll answer the second part first because it's easiest. Uh, I have a dramatic rights agent and a literary agent, uh, and they are associated. Uh, the dramatic rights, obviously, for movies, television, stage, and literary, for the rest. Uh, how did I find them? Uh, after my first novel was published, uh, George Higgins. Uh, had been given it, George had just written uh, The Friends of Eddie Coyle and was on uh, probably the highest plane of success he'd ever achieved. So in some ways, the worst of all writers' experiences, his first book was his most successful. Uh, I don't understand that. I think he writes great books. But anyway, uh, George had uh, read it and uh, sent a copy of it to his agent, John Hawkins, uh, saying he thought this would be someone that Hawkins would want to represent. I, meanwhile, had read an article by Paul Reynolds of the Paul Reynolds Agency and always thought it was very intelligent, and if I ever needed an agent, I'd ask them to be my agent. And uh, John Hawkins had married Paul Reynolds' daughter and was now the president of the, John, of the Paul Reynolds Agency, so I sent it to John Hawkins as well. Uh, so he got two manuscripts, one from Higgins and one from me. So he became my agent. After about five years' time, he was too busy. Uh, not a bad agent, but he had uh, Alex Haley and James Clavell, I think, and me. Uh, and uh, I didn't get my calls returned first, you know. Uh, so I needed someone who could give me more time, and Dan Wakefield at the time was represented by Helen Brand, and he suggested that I talk to her, and I did. And she's been my agent now since 1978. Uh, and I love her. And uh, we get along fine. Uh, that's how I found mine. We probably ought to bring this to a close pretty soon. Uh, and uh, I'll take a final question if anyone has one. Okay, then thank you very much. I think I'm signed.